1: Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner.
2: Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss what to do if you feel like you're having a midlife crisis every two years, the importance of staying grounded while you make big changes in your life, how to pivot your career and take smart risks, how to discover your strengths, and the right way to make big, exciting changes in your career with Jenny Blake. The science of success continues to grow with more than 800,000 downloads, listeners in over hundred countries hitting number one, new and noteworthy and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious about how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts and more. Because of that, we created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. In our previous episode, we talked about emotional intelligence. What is emotional intelligence and why does it matter so much? We looked at how science demonstrates that emotional intelligence matters far more than your IQ and what you can do to develop and improve your EQ as well as how to build the muscle of focus and much more with Dr. Daniel Goldman. If you wanna improve your emotional intelligence, which is highly important, listen to that episode. Today, we have another amazing guest on the show, Jenny Blake. Jenny is a best-selling author, career and business strategist. She began in the startup world and went on to work in training and career development at Google before pivoting to pursue her own projects full-time. She's the author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters Is Your Next One, and has been featured on TED, CNBC, Forbes, US World News, and much more. Jenny, welcome to the Science of Success.
3: Matt, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
2: Well, we're very excited to have you on here.
3: So for listeners who may not be
2: familiar with you and the book, tell us a little bit about kind of your background and your story.
3: Although I have worked in various forms of career development for the last 10 years, the book really came from feeling like I was going through a quarter life or midlife crisis every two years. I remember leaving college early to work at the startup, as you mentioned, after two years, hit a plateau, moved over to Google, almost left Google within two years and ended up pivoting internally to coaching and career development. And then when I left Google, this is now almost six years ago, but I remember thinking that was the hardest career decision I'd probably ever have to make. People thought I was crazy. I joke that it was like breaking up with Brad Pitt. You know, you really think you can do better than Google? Why on earth would you try and start your own business, let alone moving from San Francisco to New York, the most expensive city in the country at that time. And and so I thought that was tough. And I rode the adrenaline of trying to do my own thing for the first year and a half. And then once again hit this pivot point where I wasn't sure what was next. And this time I didn't have a steady paycheck to fund that exploration. So as my bank account balance dwindled pretty much down to zero, I felt like there has got to be a better way. And there's either something really wrong with me that I am destined to never be happy. I mean, if I wasn't happy at Google, where, where would I be? And if I couldn't make it on my own, what's left? And, but the other hypothesis was that this, Midlife or quarter life crisis feeling is actually accelerating. And that because of all the changes in our economy with technology and automation and outsourcing, we're all going to have to get better at it. And as I started to do research and try and solve this for myself, I realized that the latter is really the case. And so, It was only when I started to double down on what had been working for me that I kind of pulled myself out of the business whirlwind of what's next. And I ended up tripling my income that year and hit six figures I have since, but I kind of saw close up the mistake that so many of us make when it comes to our career. And we put pressure on ourselves and we feel bad. We often take it personally when we hit pivot points, but they're so often a product of our success more than anything else. So that's what inspired the book. And now I have to say, having launched the book, I'm at another pivot point. I, you know, who knows what's, what's next, but I feel much calmer and clearer amidst that uncertainty, which was really the goal the whole time, because None of us can predict the future, but I would love for everybody listening to this to feel calmer in the face of that uncertainty.
2: I'd love to dig into the point you made about kind of having a, a midlife crisis every couple of years. That's something that I feel like a lot of millennials especially deal with. And, and I'm curious kind of to hear your thoughts on it.
3: There's so much shame and blame in the media on millennials. Like, oh, those millennials, they can't stay put, they're job hoppers. I think that it's a whole generation. And by the way, not just limited to millennials, it's everybody who is looking and saying, if I'm not engaged at my work, and if I'm not making an impact, and I'm not learning and growing, then I'm going to be out of a job pretty soon. That those are not the jobs that are sustainable anymore. And so I don't believe that it's just one generation who is just entitled to have whatever they want i think that that millennials have seen how tough the job market is and saw many parents and family members get laid off in 2008 and reorged and and so now both sides of the equation millennials are asking and again even even people turning 65 are saying i'm not ready to retire you know work I want work to have meaning. And I call them in the book, high net growth individuals. These are people who money is important, but it is certainly not everything. And when their needs for, being, for growth are being met, they turn toward making an impact. And so people of all ages and all stages and all bank account balances are saying, how can I learn and grow and how can I truly make an impact? That's what I want to spend my time doing. Work is such a huge container for our lives. It's such a huge part of where we spend our time. So I'm all for people pivoting to continue learning and growing and and making sure that there's a place for them in the world. And, and so of course there's a tiny percentage of people who are truly entitled. And I also think that can happen at any age, but for the most part, I mean, companies are not so loyal anymore either. So everybody's having to adjust to this new landscape where, Yeah, every few years. And by the way, not all pivots have to be huge, drastic career changes. Pivot, in the the way that I wrote the book, this four-stage method for mapping what's next, it can even be within one's existing role or business, but it's a way to unpack what's already working, what success looks like, and then how to run small experiments to get there.
2: So you talked about the idea of a pivot point. What, What exactly is a pivot point?
3: I define a pivot point as that recognition that you're ready for change. And sometimes it starts as a small whisper, just something in your gut saying, I think there's more out there for you. And it can be kind of scary to first hear that call. And if we don't pay attention, the signs get louder and louder and often will manifest physically. I have a friend who was getting panic attacks every time she got off the subway on her way to work. So a pivot point is the reason I kind of hijacked the term pivot from Silicon Valley because I really wanted something that was judgment neutral and gender neutral, that a pivot point is not, it doesn't have to be a crisis. You know, up till now, that's the only language that we've really had for that existential searching of who am I and what do I really want and what's next? And I want to move it out of the crisis zone because it is happening more often and so pivot point is a way to just describe okay I've kind of outgrown whatever it is that I was doing previously there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with you now it's just a matter of looking how can you shift very methodically from that point into a new related direction or into growing within again within your current role or business.
2: So you touched on the, you mentioned a four-stage method that you describe in the book. I'd love to kind of break out each of those components and and talk about them.
3: Sure. Yeah. The metaphor that came to me, and this was really when I was figuring out how the heck I was going to pay rent in two weeks. This is when all my money had kind of run dry, is that of a basketball player. And so when a basketball player stops dribbling, they ground down in their plant foot, and then they scan for passing options with their pivot foot. The mistake I had been making was running around the basketball court like a crazy person. There was nothing grounding me. There was nothing holding me in place. I was so focused on what I didn't want, what I didn't know, what I didn't have, what wasn't working. None of that propelled me forward. And so like the basketball player, the first stage is plant what's already working? What are your known variables? What are your biggest strengths? What are your values? And what does success look like a year from now? Even if you don't know exact specifics, what do you? how do you want to feel every day? What does your ideal average day look like? Who would you love to be surrounded by? What kind of impact do you want to be making? And these are questions that you can start to Unravel, again, even if you don't know all the specifics, now from that grounded place, it's much more effective and efficient when you move into scanning. And so the scan stage is about people, skills, and projects that are based on what you already identified in plant, what's already working. And From then, from there, the third stage pilot is like passing the ball around the court, seeing where you have the best opportunity to make a shot. And a good career pilot will help you answer three E's. One, do I enjoy this new area? Two, can I become an expert at it? And three, is there room to expand in the market? So a pilot is, you know, at Google. People often hear about the 10 and 20% projects. They're really 110 120%. They're kind of tacked on to whatever we were already doing. But those were things that we were passionate about, had an interest in, wanted to experiment with. And then if those pilots were successful, they often, for many people, turned into full-time roles within the company. And so you can repeat that process, plant, scan, pilot, over and over for months, if not years, and be perfectly satisfied. And then every now and then there's the fourth stage launch, which is about going all in on a new direction. So if you're going to move teams at work or quit your job and move to a new company or start your own business, that's the launch moment. And ideally, Pivot is about reducing risk until you get to that point. So nowhere in the book do I say, take great leaps, leap of faith. This isn't about that. Pivot is for people who are more pragmatic. And it's not to say that people haven't done great things when making what I call 180s. Like if I'd quit Google to become a full-time yoga teacher, that's more of a 180. But The pivot method is really a way to reduce risk and learn through those small experiments, doubling back on your strengths, continuing that loop until you feel really clear and clear enough in your launch decision, because we can never remove all uncertainty. And that's what makes those big moves very exciting, but we can feel more clear and confident going into them.
2: And I think the mistake that so many people make is taking these giant leaps or thinking that it's necessary to kind of take this huge leap without de-risking it first.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And in the book, I every time I use the word risk, I put the word smart in front of it, smart risks. Because when we try and pivot too sharply, too drastically from where we are right now, that's what tends to send us into what I call the panic zone. So we have our comfort zone, Stretch zone and panic zone. And then, if we're really not making any change, stagnation zone. But where people tend to get tripped up is they pick moves or next steps that are in their panic zone. And so they end up feeling paralyzed. And it's a feeling of a lot of compare and despair or not taking action, analysis, paralysis, these terms you've probably all heard before. And that's a signal that there's too much risk. So, how can you break your next steps down, even exploratory steps? much smaller so that you actually feel even if they're still a little edgy, they're within your stretch zone they' They feel doable. And so keep breaking them down until yeah, it's no longer that untested risk like you mentioned.
2: Well, the all the different stages, obviously, is, is a lot to kind of unpack. I'd love to start maybe with some of the early stages. One of the ideas you talk about is is starting from your strengths. I'd love to explore that.
3: This is the foundation of so much positive psychology movement. There's the book Finder 2.0 and assessment that goes with it. And I can only just say for me that as a solopreneur, so self-employed, it just didn't work when I was looking too far outside myself or too far down the road at projects that would have taken six months to get off the ground. I needed to, in order to get myself out of the pickle I was in, I needed to really look at what was already working in that moment and what my strengths were. And so I, this is my second book. My first book, Life After College came out in 2011. I had a book, I had speaking engagements, I had coaching clients, and and I had been ignoring a lot of those strengths because I was not wanting to talk about life after college for the rest of my career or life after Google. I'd become known on podcasts as the girl who left things and I didn't know what I was going toward. But it wasn't until I started to call my former coaching clients and say, what are you looking for help with? What can I help? What can I create for you? I had a, an idea for a program called Brilliance Barter, which was kind of a group, private community, mastermind, giving and receiving feedback And those previous clients who had already hired me in the past were instrumental in giving feedback. And now it's the program called Momentum. It has shifted. But launching that is what helped me regain traction. And that came from people who had already hired me and things I was already good at. And so that then gave me the freedom and the pivot runway to take on longer term projects like writing the book, which took three years from start to finish.
2: So for somebody who's listening and may not have a good idea how do we find our strengths?
3: I do recommend that book Strength Finder 2.0. I would also look at it's it sounds cliché and you've probably all heard it before but truly what you like to do as a kid. And in the book, I have an exercise that breaks it down into a table of, if you can remember or ask your parents, let's say preschool to five or six or seven years old, then let's say eight to eight years old to middle school. Okay, then what did you like in high school? Because the games and projects will probably have shifted and obviously grown in sophistication, but there are common threads throughout. So for example, I used to play business a lot as a kid. And I used to play school. I liked my poor younger brother. I would make him worksheets and wanted him to teach him what I was learning. And I wanted him to feel like get ahead of his class based on what I was learning. And that's not much different than what I do now speaking. I read a ton of books and then I make worksheets and templates that I post online and that make it into the book to help people figure things out. And so I think everybody can reverse engineer their own strengths, and also, when do you feel the most in the zone? So within your current work, even if it's only 10% of the time, when does time fly? And what do people most often come to you for advice on? That's often very instructive too, whether personally or professionally. And not just what they come to you for, but what they end up leaving with beyond what they sought you out for. So sometimes, let's say, people will come to me for advice And I give advice, but then they'll often say, thank you. I always feel so optimistic after I talk to you, you know, or they'll say some adjective that I might not have thought of was a strength. And so be an observer in your own life over these next weeks and months, and it will will start to come together. And it's not that you have to know everything, but you can start to take those clues and then figure out, okay, well what would feel really exciting? What experiments could I set up that don't involve setting the farm that don't involve, you know, me trying to make a drastic move, but just maybe even taking a class. That's interesting.
2: I love the advice to, to talk to other people and kind of get their perspective. Cause the thing that I've found and I've, I've taken a lot of these like string finders and all this stuff, I feel like self-assessments always kind of miss a piece of the puzzle. And when you get the perspective of someone else or maybe multiple other people, it can shine light on things that you don't even realize that you're good at.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Definitely. Another concept that you you touch on is the idea of bolstering your bench. Tell me a little bit about that.
3: This is the people side of the equation. And even the term networking kind of gives people hives. I know people don't like it. And so what the bolster your bench section of the book is really about how can you create a supportive network that feels good. It's not about networking, but what are the people strategies that have worked for me and for others? And a big one is debunking the idea that you need to have a mentor. I find that very awkward to try and ask a stranger, will you be my mentor? If often people will offer if they want to play that role for you, but I'm a big proponent of friend tours, people who are at your level who you can set up shared accountability with and shared support. And that it's okay if they don't know more than you. It's about checking in, sharing wins, setting up regular calls. I have a friend and I do 30, 30, 30 calls. So we catch up for 30 minutes and then we'll do 30 minutes of brainstorming for his business and then 30 minutes for mine. Another friend and I have accountability email threads. So we just start an email thread at the beginning of the month and we check in about what our goals are and what we're getting done as we go. And so, and then there's another technique I talk about in the book called drafting, which is about finding people who are a few steps ahead in whatever it is that you want to do and either shadowing or apprenticing, or if your skills are at such a level, you can say, if you have any overflow work that you can't handle, I'd be happy to help out. And finding people who you can learn from, You know, think about the Tour de France or birds flying information where they're kind of in the lead. And so you get reduced tailwind, but you can still, there's still benefit to both of you. It's not about leeching off of another person, but there's benefit to both of you about being in the same ecosystem. And you can draft behind people you've never met. So everybody who's listening to your podcast, Matt, it's a form of drafting, of learning from other people, even from afar. So through podcasts and books and, I've learned so much from people who I may never meet in real life. And some of that's very brass tacks, you know, tactical business stuff. And others is people I admire who it doesn't seem like their work relates to mine, but then there are clues. For example, Amy Schumer, you know, I don't ever see myself being a stand-up comedian, but there are things about her and her style and her work ethic and her projects that really resonate. So what can I learn? What can I unpack from that?
2: I'm curious, what did you learn from Amy Schumer?
3: Well, one humor is important to me. I, when I'm speaking, I do, I, I do always like to make people laugh, and I r- realize that I feel the best when I can come down from a talk and and I've like not just inspired people and hopefully empowered them and given them practical tips, but made them laugh a little bit. I love Amy Schumer's honesty. I love how just authentic. She is of of telling it like it is and, and kind of revealing herself for the service of shared laughter and understanding. So even though I'm not a comedian, it's also important to me to just be open, be vulnerable, really say what's up. And I think truth with a capital T is very helpful for people to hear. And it's the people that I'm the most drawn to. And then And then I just respect her work ethic. I mean, she's a hustler. (laughs) She's producing so much. So it's been really fun to see her career just rise and thrive.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. On the subject of learning, which you touched on a little bit, one of the things you you mentioned is the idea of learning how to learn, and and we talked a little bit about kind of the importance of reading, and and I think everybody listening to this show knows how important it is to be to, to read widely and study and learn from other people. But I'm curious when you when you kind of talk about the idea of learning how to learn, what does that mean to you?
3: This is about what Kevin Kelly. He's the co-founder of Wired, and I interviewed him for my Pivot podcast. He calls it the perpetual newbie state, that there's no end to learning. Some would say our purpose on this planet is to learn and grow. That's why we're here. But especially now with what's how rapidly the economy is changing and technology – We do best to be in a perpetual newbie state where we don't know what's coming down the pike. And so to learn how to learn, to really be open to learning new things and be willing to apply yourself to learning new things, to be willing to be bad at something for a while until you get the hang of it is really critical. This is a key skill to stay relevant and to stay engaged. And so he shares the example of even even our phones, when a new update gets pushed, we don't always know exactly how to use it. We, we have to relearn. So even we think we know, oh, yeah, I know how to use my phone. But the apps change their interface very regularly with the OS upgrades every pretty regularly. So even that is a, is a dynamic entity now, and much more so than ever has been in the past.
2: And one of the interesting things about kind of the idea of focusing on learning new things is, and I think this is actually something Kevin might've talked about in the past is, is kind of, how do you strike that balance between focusing in on what you're already good at and really leveraging that to, to thrive versus carving out time and energy to improve in areas or learn new things? How do you, how do you balance those two things?
3: I think just like you said, just, it's not all or nothing and doesn't have to be one or the other. And I'm really big on thinking of your career, like a smartphone not a ladder. It's not this linear thing where you just climb from step to step. Your smartphone, it's your education and your upbringing is your out-of-the-box model. And then it's up to you to download apps for different skills, experiences, interests. And so some of our apps are are big ones, like our day job or running my own business. But then within that, there are all these smaller apps of things I'm learning and doing. Podcasting for me was an app that I thought, okay, I'll just do this as a side project to make the book more dynamic. So when the book comes out, people can also hear audio interviews. Well, it turned out, and I started in a really scrappy way, just recording using my iPhone headphones and uploading to SoundCloud. It wasn't in iTunes for a year that I was doing it. And then I realized I really love this. It's so joyful to get to talk to some of my author heroes and experiment with this format. And going back to something I loved to do as a kid, I was always making video broadcasts. I liked doing things like that. And so it it was so joyful. And I taught myself GarageBand. I taught myself audio editing. So by no means is it perfect, but that's not the goal. I really try and just get things out in a, even if it's an 80% good enough state. And because of how much fun I was having, I started investing more and more into it. So that's part of how to know how to spend one's time is – you don't up front. But if you think about pilots to switch metaphors for a moment, like racehorses at the Kentucky Derby, you just kind of say go and you see which one of your pilots pulls out ahead. So podcasting is one that pulled out ahead for me. And I had no idea. But then once you see that and you feel it happening with that sense of joy and excitement and motivation, then you can look, okay, well, how can I grow even further in this area?
2: I think that's that's really the fundamental genius of of this whole framework is kind of the idea that instead of taking these massive leaps of faith, you can put out a lot of feelers and kind of small projects. And from there, really find which ones are working the best and then double down on those or triple down on those and really invest in them.
3: Yeah, exactly. And and then again, taking the pressure off that we're supposed to know this upfront. I think a lot of people feel hesitant that, Oh no, I'm looking for something new and I don't know what it is. And then we immediately beat ourselves up. I know I did. And I felt, you know, I wasted a lot of time wondering, am I delusional? Is the jig up? Like, am I done with entrepreneurship? Was, were all my, the people who told me I was crazy, were they right? And was my inner critic, right? That because I don't know what's next. I shouldn't be doing this. And really it was just a matter of separating those two things. It's okay to know that you're at a pivot point and then not to know what's next and to be in the phase of setting up several experiments and then looking, okay, which ones can I circle back to and double down on?
2: And you talk about kind of carving out a a portion of your time for these new test projects. I'd love to, to explore that idea a little bit more.
3: Yeah. What would be
2: most helpful? I guess just kind of digging into the concept of, you know, for, for somebody, let's say that's in a full-time job right now, like what, how much time should they be spending or, or how are they going to kind of figure out how to allocate their time in terms of these kind of test projects versus, mm-hmm. you know, their their existing day job?
3: Yeah, well, within within a day job, there's two options. One is you start Experimenting with something on the side, or two, as you pitch a ten percent project at work. So when I was at Google, when I was very early in the company, I started an office book club. Once again, I love books and I love interesting conversation about these books. So that was really fun, and it had nothing to do with my job. I mean, kind of. I was on a training team, so it was helpful for us to be well-read. But that was really fun, and and I didn't need it to be anything more than that. Sometimes we expect our quote day job to provide this ultimate fulfillment and self-actualization. And maybe it's good enough. And if you just add one little app or 10% sort of team or interest thing that you do at work, that's good enough. I also did coach training on nights and weekends in 2008. And so later, when a career development team was formed, there was not one at the time that I did that. And my manager didn't want to approve it at first, and I really fought for it. But a year later, when a career development team was formed, I was perfectly positioned to move on to it because I had downloaded that app of coach training on my own time. And I had also started a ten percent team with a group of other people wanting to make drop coaching as widely available to Googlers as a massage, dropping coaching to talk about things that are really important. And now that program Career Guru is still around 10 years later. It grew into something where there's a full-time person managing it, my friend Becky, and it's on the cover of my book. So who could have known that that 10% project would have evolved into what it is now? For people who don't want to do something like that at work, then it's about just not making it all or nothing once again, as far as your time. So I've been really amazed by the progress I can make when I dedicate 15 minutes a day to something or one hour a week. When I was working full time and working on my blog and book on the side, I was often only able to carve out about three to four hours every Sunday afternoon because I was too tired during the week. And that was it. And, and, you know, I started the Life After College blog in 2005, and it's still around today. It's now 11 years later, just from making it work on the side. And I've done, you know, writing the second book, Pivot. You would think it's easier when I, you know, being self-employed, but actually it was a challenge because I still had to pay the bills. So this time I didn't, although I had more quote, like technically had more time and more freedom to allocate my time. I really had to stay focused on earning income. And so it's not like I had just free reign to just like gloriously sit and drink tea and write all day. And so actually, in the end, I think those creative constraints help us be more motivated and more productive with the time that we do have. So uh, my book really got done. I, I use Rescue Time, the extension for the computer. And when I looked backward, really, on average, it got done with about an hour a day of work. And now a lot of days, I wasn't able to touch it at all. Some days, it was just 20 minutes in the morning. And then some weekends, I would like power through and do two 10-hour days. But those weren't as often as one might think. So I would encourage everybody listening, do your own 15, I call it 15 for 30 challenge, 15 minutes a day for 30 days. And you will be so, so shocked at how much you actually end up accomplishing at the end of that time.
2: I think that's a great piece of advice. And, and again, it doesn't have to be something... Major. It can be really, really simple, just 15 minutes a day. And, you know, after a month's work, you can, you can really put together something fascinating. One of the things you you touch on is, is the concept of reveling in what others reject. I'd love to explore that.
3: Yeah, this is about the story someone named Amy who was doing social media and PR in her company. Well, no, she wasn't doing social media, but it was a public relations company and nobody wanted the social media accounts working with bloggers. And, and so she said, I'll do it. And as we all now know, blogging, Instagram, Twitter, these things have become so huge as far as Media strategy. And so she she was then quickly promoted because she took on this work that nobody wanted. So I think it can be really interesting to know that somebody else's grunt work is your zone of genius. I'll give an example. My coworker Becky. So anyone who has done Myers Briggs, you'll know the last letter of a Myers Briggs profile is either a J or a P. P's tend to be more spontaneous, free roaming, they thrive on deadlines. J's are super organized. They love to-do lists. They are very structured. And so it's usually really good if a J and a P can partner up. Because the Ps can be pretty creative and far ranging, and the Js help create structure. So my coworker Becky and I—we've worked together since the one who's still at Google—and she just calls me her J, you know. And I—I I say in the back of the book, I love being the J to her P. That when we're doing projects together, I love being one to create the notes or create the work, the model that we're going to use. Like ways that my brain works about conceptualizing complex things hers just doesn't do. So the work that she doesn't like, I love, and it's like candy to me to get to do. And so if you can find those things that other people reject, but you are secretly great at, that's a really good thing. So yeah, for me, I love, I love spreadsheets and templates who knew. So I create spreadsheets for complex things that, you know, like kind of life questions and I'll create models. And so that's a really nuanced way to think about strengths but i i encourage you to kind of look for those hidden pockets and and just even on a macro level to know that the work someone else hates like is going to be the work you love so keep looking for those pockets let's
2: dig into the concept of the three e's that you talked about earlier what, you touched on it briefly but i'm curious what are those and kind of how do those apply to uh, what we've been talking about
3: the three e's are when you're testing a new direction or a pilot do you enjoy it? Can you become an expert at it? And is there room to expand either within your company or within the marketplace? Think about a pilot. It's like a test episode of a TV show. It's one episode meant to help a network assess whether they should pick it up for the full series or not. So in order for you to know what these experiments, if they're working or not, it's the three E's that are going to help you assess. So when I did coach training Did I enjoy it? A hundred percent. I loved it. I loved it. Nothing made me come more alive. Like I'd been doing AdWords product training and I really enjoyed the aspect of working with people, but I didn't want to talk about how to place analytics tracking code for the rest of my career. So I loved it. Could I become an expert at it? You know, we never really know, but it is something you're naturally good at and drawn to and, and how is it going so far? And it took me years to really find my sea legs as, as a coach, but it was always felt worth. Doing and worth investing in. And then expansion is there room to expand? You know, again, it's not that you have to know 100%, but yes, there were opportunities for me to do coaching and pitch coaching and create coaching programs within Google. And then when I pivoted, when I left Google, I was doing coaching and career development within the company and then pivoted to do it in my own business. And coaching has been the most steady. I call it bridge income that I've had since. So in almost six years of running my business, the one thing that has most consistently paid the bills is one-on-one coaching. And so clearly there was room both within the broader marketplace, but me personally in my career and my business to do even more of that. And it's not to say that I only want to do coaching. You know, it's one of many apps on my phone amidst speaking and my private momentum community and the podcast and the books, but it's certainly a fulfilling one. And so that's always what I'm trying to understand. And and if you're an entrepreneur or even a side hustler, it's fun to just be piloting different streams of income or pricing models. For so long, I tried to run my business like an online marketer. These people I'd seen really be really successful doing online courses and programs. And while I love facilitating, I hated the launch process. And so I changed my business model because of it, because of how I felt running those experiments.
2: You talk about the idea in the book of flipping failure. I'd love to to dig into that.
3: Yeah, this is a lot of people are afraid to pivot because there's this fear of failure. What if I fail? And really ask yourself, what does failure mean to you? Re- really? I'm not saying that like a rhetorical question. Oh, there's no such thing. What does it mean? For some people, failure is I make the wrong move and I regret it, or I make a move and I, or I quit my job and then I run out of money and then I have to go find another job. But if you follow most failure scenarios, they're never a failure. Decisions are data. They always move us forward. Nobody I interviewed regretted their launch decision, regretted their pivot, even when it didn't work out as planned, even when they had to pivot again a year or two later, so many people got pivoted, things changed that were beyond their control. And still for high net growth individuals, we will pretty much almost always see these for the blessings in disguise that they are, that I'm I'm actually so glad this happened. I learned so much. And so if we start to unpack failure and then whatever remnants of your fear of failure are left and are real, you can create contingency plans and worst case scenario plans for. So if it really is that you know, you lose all your money and you're destitute and you have to move back home. Okay, well, are you willing to move back home? And if not, what benchmarks would you put in place to to correct course before that has to happen? And in doing that, we we separate what are just internal concerns versus external kind of process-based steps we can actually take. So internal concerns of, I'm not cut out for this. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too dumb. I'm too smart. I mean, I've heard them all myself. And those we can usually keep going. Acknowledge the fear. Career change in general tends to bring up a lot of fear because it seems to threaten our ability to provide for ourselves and our most basic needs on Maslow's hierarchy, food, clothing, and shelter. But if we can just say, okay, I I I yes, I'm afraid. Yes, I'm feeling insecure. Yes, I'm unsure, and keep taking those small steps forward anyway, that's success.
2: One of the things you 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 mentioned there is the idea of people kind of getting pivoted, which I'm assuming means sort of the world changes despite the fact that you didn't necessarily want to change. And I think that's another really important point of, of this whole kind of methodology is that in many cases, you know, often, yes, millennials or, or, or people who want to kind of explore new opportunities can benefit from this and, and being proactive about it. But oftentimes, you know, the world is changing very, very rapidly and, you know, learning this skill set and this framework can be incredibly valuable in the face of, of so much rapid change.
3: Definitely. And again, just not take it personally that I saw so many people who their company got acquired and then they were fired or then the company collapsed or, I mean, there was just so much going on. And so, although in those moments, if you get pivoted, it's not a choice that you proactively made. Of course, it's very shocking. So just allowing that, having Self-compassion that it's okay that this happened and processing, but then, you know, once you have done some processing to really say, okay, where can I go from here? And one of the, my favorite coaching exercises is if you were the main character in a movie, why is this scene, this moment happening right now in this exact way? To you? And why are these exact people involved, this exact timing? What are you meant to learn and do differently on the other side and, or to get to the other side? And so, if we see ourselves, that's such an empowering question because it's like life isn't just happening to me. I mean, so many self help gurus use this line, but life isn't happening to me, it's happening for me. So, how can you see those moments of unexpected change as actually in your best interest and for your highest evolution and learning and growth.
2: So for someone who's listening and wants to concretely implement some of these ideas, what's kind of one piece of homework you would give for listeners to get started?
3: Based on everything we talked about, what jumped out for you? What Little sparks of interest or excitement were there? What are you wildly curious about? And even if it's nothing that I specifically said, but just some idea that it jogged or sparked for you, the two questions I love to ask as far as really getting practical are what's one small step you can take this week and what one next step would make the biggest impact. And often those are two different things. But so one little tiny thing that you can just do right after you stop listening to this podcast and then one thing that would really make a big impact. And if, if bonus, the vision, the one year vision is one of the most helpful parts of a pivot and the one so many people skip. So really sit with what does success look like a year from now and get down all the known variables that you can, even if there's still plenty of unknowns left. And that's going to be your guiding light and motivate you when you hit bumps in the road.
2: And where can people find you and the book online?
3: That's at pivotmethod.com. And I have a podcast called The Pivot Podcast. I also have a blog at jennyblake.me. And from there, they'll point you everywhere. Momentum from the Pivot Method website. If you go to slash toolkit, there's a ton of free resources. Slash Momentum is the private community I mentioned. And then for anybody who wants private one-on-one pivot coaching. I have an amazing team of six pivot coaches and we do two session jump starts. So you can sign up with any of them to just get two sessions in with email in between and really kind of light the fire under your next moves.
2: Well, Jenny, thank you so much for being on the show. I know listeners are really going to get a lot out of this. And I think it's a, it's a really important framework for anybody who's thinking about you know, what's my next move? What direction do I want to go in? This is a, a great methodology and one that is very worthwhile to implement.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. And big thanks to everybody for who's here listening.
2: Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I would love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing Free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word Smarter, that's S M A R T E R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we've talked about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes at scienceofsuccess.co. Just hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Science of Success.